because that is the most important thing. That is the reason why we celebrate today. Uh, I thought about uh, dressing up like a bunny and using the school set here and coming down, having a dramatic entrance this morning in a bunny costume. But you know, Easter's not about bunnies. It's not about chocolate eggs. It's not about going on an Easter egg hunt. Easter is about a risen Savior. And that's why we're here today, and that's why we celebrate. I read on Friday morning, about 9 o'clock in the morning on WREL, a high school junior was killed in a car crash on Friday morning. Maybe you saw it. And his sister was injured. Troopers say that Ryan Austin Eatman was driving his Ford Explorer about 70 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone when he overcorrected and he crashed around 7.10 a.m., The 17-year-old died almost instantly in the crash. His sister, a middle middle school student, was taken to the hospital there and done. And here's what I found to be very interesting, which sometimes we don't see the story behind the story. And while that was very tragic, the young man's last Facebook post before he left for a half day of school on Friday was this. On this day, thousands of years ago, a man was beaten, tormented, and crucified for you. He gave the greatest love for you so that, so that one day you can all be with him in paradise. For that, he said, I am thankful. He closed by saying on his post on Facebook, just think about that, all of you who just think this is just a half day of school. This high school student obviously understood the Easter story. He understood what Easter was about, that, that knowing and understanding who the resurrected Savior is, not just was, but is today, it changes everything. Let me ask you, do you know, not just from an intellectual standpoint, but do you know, have you experienced the Easter story uh, this morning? I want to give you a brief summary. It's Friday in Jerusalem. If you can picture that with me and go there in your mind right now, and there's a huge crowd that's gathered in a place that we sing about quite often. We sing about it as Golgotha. It is literally called the place of Skull Hill, the place of the skull. It was on the north side of the city, just outside the Damascus Gate, and it was located on a well-traveled road. You see, the, the Romans loved to crucify people uh, where the public had full view. They felt like it had a controlling effect on the masses, and no doubt that it did. This particular crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus, started about 9 o'clock in the morning, and then for three hours everything proceeded as normal, and then at exactly 12 noon the sky went black, and it wasn't overcast, but it was pitch black. In fact, if you were to hold your hand up in front of your face, you couldn't see your hand. And for three hours, darkness fell across the whole city of Jerusalem. And then just as suddenly as it had started, the darkness lifted, it disappeared, it vanished away, and sanity returned to the earth, at least for a moment. And one glance on that middle cross, you remember that's where Jesus was crucified, made it very clear that this man Jesus wouldn't last that much longer. He looked dead already. His body quivered uncontrollably. His chest was heaving and and every breath was torture for him. And the Roman soldiers knew from their experience that he wouldn't last probably till sundown. And he shouted something at that particular moment. He shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone in the crowd shouted back to him, and then moments passed, and death was drawing very near. And then there was a quiet whisper. You had to be listening very carefully to hear it. He said, I thirst. 
And rather than a simple water, glass of water given to him or something with, with pure water on it, and the soldiers lifted up a, a sponge with, with vinegar on it, and they lifted it up to his lips so that, so that his lips could be dried. And he moistened his lips with the vinegar, and then he took a deep breath. If, if, you, could, if you could listen, and if you could hear it this morning, you would hear what some of you have heard when you've lied next to the person who is about ready to slip out into eternity. You hear that death rattle in his throat. He had less than a minute to live. And then he spoke again, and it was just one word. And at that particular moment, if you weren't listening really, really carefully, you would have missed it. He spoke one word. You might have missed it in all of the confusion. What was it that he shouted? Some of you know we talked about this a few years ago. We talked about that Greek word that is translated in English. It is finished, the Greek word being tetelestai. It's done, it's over, it's complete. John chapter 19, verse 30 says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said it is finished, and with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Literally translated, tetelestai means it's finished. It was used to confirm that a debt had been paid in full, completely. In Christ's time, the word tetelestai would have had a deeper meaning than simply it is finished, especially to the people uh, that were there that owed taxes to the Romans. Archaeologists have actually recovered tax receipts from the first and second centuries with the Greek word tetelestai written across them, just like we would get a stamp that says paid in full. The connection between those receipts and what Christ had accomplished would have been very clear to those people that would, that would have been listening at that moment that were familiar with the Greek language. They understood that. They understood what John was saying. It would be unmistakable that Jesus Christ had just paid for their sins. It was also used as a stamp to put on a criminal's charges once he had completed his sentence. When he walked out of the prison, they would stamp it to telestai meaning he has paid the debt. The debt that he owed to society for his crime is no longer owed. It has been paid in full to telestai. And so what did he mean when he said it's paid in full? What was finished? What was paid in full? It meant that the work that God had given him to do was complete. It was finished. And as he hung there on the cross, he celebrated the greatest victory I would submit to you today in human history. The ransom for sin had been paid completely. And that is a reason this morning why you ought to celebrate. Not because Tim Tebow comes and speaks at your church. Not because you won the free iPad coming in this morning. But because the debt that you and I couldn't have possibly paid on our own had finally been paid. And the debt was settled forever. I love that. I grieve for those who call themselves Christ followers and yet believe that there's somehow a way in which you can lose your salvation. That debt had been paid in completely final forever. And you can't do enough good things to add to that sacrifice. There's not enough religion, no baptism, no penance. Nothing you can do to add to, can, can add to that and you don't need to add to that to telesty it's been paid in full. Paid in full means once it's paid for, the debt is no longer held against you, and it's foolish for you to try to pay it again. Why would you continue to pay for a debt that you know has been paid in full? Obviously, you would not. Let me ask you a question, though. What if three days later nothing had happened? 
What if Jesus had just simply died on a cross and he was a, he was a good man, he was a good man who, for whatever reason, loved us enough that he was willing to suffer and bleed and die, even though he didn't deserve it, on a cruel Roman cross. But what if he had stayed in that borrowed tomb in which he was buried? I would submit to you today would be a much different day if that would have been the case. Do you know all of the world's great religions, and I say great religions in the sense of that there are many people that follow these particular religious beliefs, all of them have one thing in common, that is all of them but one. When someone famous dies, we make memorials to them, don't we? If you were to go, for example, uh, this morning to Memphis, Tennessee, you would see a memorial to who? Elvis. Now, there's some people that think that that's a mistake, right? Because Elvis is somehow still alive. It's getting to the point where if Elvis is still alive, he is a very, very old, decrepit man, okay? But we've created a memorial. I say we. I'm not really an Elvis fan. Some people have created a memorial to Elvis, you were to go out to California and you were to go to the Ronald Reagan Library, you would see that there is a memorial that's created there for a great president of our country. If you'd go to Washington, D.C., you would see that there have been memorials created to very, very uh, well-known, famous people. You have to understand that when a religious leader, a great religious leader dies, in our culture, it's something very, very different. In fact, if you were to look at the four major world religions that are based on a person and not simply a set of ideas... Look, for example, at Judaism, which is based upon Abraham. If you were to go to Hebron, you would see there a great memorial over the place where Abraham is, to believe, is believed to have been buried. And people, people worship in that place there in Hebron. The Buddhism was founded by Buddha. It, it came originally out of uh, India. And if you were to go there to India, you would see a great shrine that has been built uh, to uh, worship uh, Buddha. In Islam, Muhammad founded that religion as a great prophet, as is said. He's buried in Medina. And if you were to go there today to Medina, as many people do on their pilgrimages, if you're Muslim, if you were to go there, you would see that they have erected a great monument to Muhammad. It's an enormous monument, and it is used for the purpose of worship. Christianity, however, was founded by a man named Jesus Christ, right? His tomb is not only not enshrined, but it's not even known where it is. In fact, if you were to go to the city of Jerusalem today, and you were to go into the city and you would say, take me to the tomb where Jesus is, uh, the tour guide would take you into the city and they might take you to the garden tomb and say, this is where we believe that Jesus at one point was buried. The problem is there's no bones in that grave. They wouldn't even know where to take you, and they would be careful to tell you that there is no body there, and they're not sure exactly why uh, they don't know where he's buried. And yet you and I know this morning, right? That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate today. They don't know where his grave is because he's not dead. He is alive. That's why we celebrate today. The story is told of a Muslim in Africa who came to know Jesus as his Savior, and some friends asked him why he had become a Christian. His answer was this. Let me read it for you. He said, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions and you didn't know which way to go and there in the fork of the road were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? 
You'd ask the man that was alive. And that man, however young in his faith, he had it right. The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. But here's the question. How do you know that it's true and why does it matter this morning, 2,000 years later? Some of you are familiar with Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is a, a great Christian apologist. He said this, After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. You see, the resurrection is not just simply uh, important to 